Welcome to the Cat Principle Podcast, everybody, with your host, Al Bolter, here. Today, we're going to continue with the series called Into the Great Wide Open, Touring the American West, parts 7 and 8 of a 10-part series. This series is based upon a road trip I took this past summer in August throughout the American West. It was a fascinating trip, to say the least and hence I've written several blogs on the subject which can be found at my blog site at www.albertbolter.com it's called the cat blog and I think you'll find them highly interesting along with the photos uh, there from the journey so in a moment I'll be back with part seven of into the great wide open touring the American West Into the Great Wide Open, Touring the American West, Part 7. Lincoln, Nebraska is bigger than I thought. With almost 300,000 people, one drives through expansive suburban areas before arriving downtown. This I discovered the next morning as I headed towards its most prominent building and one of the most amazing exemplars of Art Deco architecture ever built, namely the Nebraskan State Capitol. I was told that I couldn't miss this grand edifice, but I did. Heading north on South 10th Street, a few blocks to the west of it, I ended up plunk in the middle of the University of Nebraska's campus. I knew something was amiss as I turned around and headed back south, but this time the track was correct. Suddenly, this majestic 400-foot tower with the sour on top appeared. There it stood in full glory as if Ayn Rand herself plucked it out of the fountainhead and placed it standing there. This bold design was a product of an architect competition formulated by famed architect Thomas Rogers Kimball, who lived from 1862 to 1934, on behalf of the Nebraska Capitol Commission. Its task was to erect a new state capitol building in place of the existing one. The eventual winner, the firm of Bertram Grosvenor Goodhue, provided for a unique way to construct it. It would be built in four phases from 1922 to 1932, allowing Nebraskan taxpayers to pay for it as it was constructed. With a $1 million budget for each of the 10 years, it came in under budget at $9.8 million. One can only imagine what it would cost today to replicate such an architectural marvel. Walking the halls, one is transported into an ethos of solemnity and earnestness. The Grand Hall gives an impression of a neo-Gothic cathedral with busts placed in alcoves featuring prominent personas of Nebraskan history. The solid mahogany doors to the former East Chamber. In 1937, the Nebraska legislature became a unicameral system instead of a bicameral one, known as the Warner Legislative Chamber provide color to the otherwise somber tones of the surroundings. Each weighs 750 pounds and both depict carvings of Nebraska's first inhabitants, the Plains Indians, done by local artesian Keats Lorenz. Outside one is confronted by a statue of President Abraham Lincoln, who lived from 1809 to 1865, in deep thought as one can only imagine Lincoln is doing. 
It left me staring for a moment in wonder of this incredible American president and all that he had accomplished before being cut down by an assassin's bullet. In the same vein, the town bearing his name became a symbol of what pioneers on the Great Plains set out to accomplish. My arrival that afternoon in Omaha on the bank of North America's longest river, the mighty Missouri, left me longing for more and more was yet to come. Known as the Big O by the locals, Omaha is Nebraska's biggest city. It's home to the Oracle of Omaha, otherwise known as the prophet of investing by the name of Warren Buffett. Entering Omaha from the southwest on Interstate 80, one is amazed to witness the affluence of the surrounding areas. Much to my surprise, where I was expecting to see run-down slaughterhouses, I saw shiny new buildings amongst green trees and well-groomed office parks. Omaha was booming. One could clearly feel this. Downtown was no different. The historic district close to the river in the heartlands of America Park, with its water fountain and man-made lake, could be taken for a small Lake Geneva of sorts. The many outdoor cafes and restaurants in the area gave an idyllic feeling, yet a contemporary glow. Not too far where the downtown skyscrapers and at the corner of Capitol Avenue and North 14th Street was an amazing array of statues and sculptures. They depicted a replica of a pioneer convoy trekking across the prairies. Back in that great hall of the state capitol in Lincoln, there's a bust of American author Villa Cather who lived from 1873 to 1947 to be found sitting in an alcove. Beneath is a plaque with words from a 1913 novel, O Pioneers. And I read and I quote, The history of every country begins in the heart of a man or a woman, unquote. Upon seeing that convoy of bronze statues in downtown Omaha, those words came to life. With each passing mile, with each trek through the American West, the thought of those words rang louder than the mile before. They gave meaning to the many things witnessed thus far on this Tour de Americana. They provided context where there was none before. The road was long, but the road had depth. The American West would forever be etched into memory. It was time to enjoy one final night west of the Missouri River. Into the Great Wide Open, Touring the American West, Part 8. Crossing the Missouri River at Omaha, one lands at Council Bluffs, Iowa. It's there that one turns south onto Interstate 29 and heads for the green farms of Missouri. As the highway slithers south along the eastern Missouri River Valley, it's not long before the Missouri Welcomes You sign appears. It's here that one enters the state where the Pony Express, the Oregon Trail, the Santa Fe Trail, and the California Trail all began. It's from here that thousands upon thousands of settlers, of all shapes, sizes, and backgrounds, set out to tame the frontier. It's from here that the gateway opened to the American West, and that that all-American author named Mark Twain, who lived from 1835 to 1910, came into the world. Florida was my next destination, not the Florida of palms and oranges, 
but the Florida of dilapidated houses, a white painted clapboard church, and a memorial park overlooking the waters of Mark Twain Lake. This Florida is the birthplace of Samuel Langhorne Clemens, otherwise known as Mark Twain. Located off the beaten track towards the eastern side of Missouri, one never guessed that one of America's great writers was born here. Road signs point that way, but without them, Florida would be even more isolated than it already is, which is hard to fathom. Unfortunately, my arrival that afternoon caught the museum already closed, but the trek was invaluable. It impressed upon me the meager roots from which Twain arose. By the time Twain was four years old, his parents moved the family to Hannibal, Missouri. The town finds itself on the west bank of the Mississippi River, about 40 miles northeast of Florida. To visit Hannibal is to visit a quintessential Mississippi River port town. Climbing the hill to Mark Twain Lighthouse, one earns a sweeping vista of the Mississippi River. Looking south, one procures an unvarnished view of Main Street with the princely Mark Twain Hotel at the south end. In 1874, Twain published his celebrated novel, Tom Sawyer, which is based upon his years of growing up in Hannibal. Although he left home in 1861 to tour the American West and eventually travel the world, he always reminisced about his times in Hannibal. Today, the house where he spent his youth still stands, as does the office where his father practiced law. Both can be seen, and yes, a white picket fence still stands as depicted in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Thankfully, historic Hannibal has survived the ebb and flow of the Mississippi over the decades and has experienced something of a renaissance. Thousands of tourists visit annually. They come to catch a glance of a bygone era well described by Twain. Walking the streets, one expects Huck Friend with Bindle and Tom Sawyer with Stock to go sauntering by at any moment. Then again, seeing the Tom and Huck statue overlooking Main Street at the bottom of Cardiff Hill, why wouldn't one? As my time ended in Hannibal, I departed thinking about Twain's many wise aphorisms. Crossing the Mississippi over the Mark Twain Bridge into the land of Lincoln, my next stop would be Springfield, Illinois. Being the birthplace of President Abraham Lincoln, perhaps it was him who Twain thought of when he wrote, and I quote, Good friends, good books, and a sleepy conscience. This is the ideal life, unquote. For if there ever was a man to epitomize this, then it would have had to have been Honest Abe, another giant of the American landscape, who, like Twain, was a source of boundless wisdom. The road continued east as I moved through the Illinois twilight towards Springfield. Tomorrow would bring another day, and with it another story of this great American West journey. Well, folks, that's parts seven and eight of the CAT blog, Into the Great Wide Open, Touring the American West blog series of 10 parts. I hope you enjoyed them. And next time, we'll be finishing off the series with parts nine and 10, which will be the conclusion of this great journey. In the meantime, please feel free to check out my website again at, Albert, at www.albertbolter.com. There you'll find the blogs if you'd like to read them along with the photographs of the journey, with some of the photographs of the journey, not all of them. 
And uh, also, uh, you'll find links there to my book, which the, uh, the blog is based upon. The Cat Principle, Change Action Trust, Words to Live By, was an award-winning book. It took Best Self-Help Book of um, the Global Ebook Awards in 2014, as well as the Silver in 2016. It's available on Amazon for purchase, either um, Kindle or paperback. And you can also order it through Barnes & Noble. So until the next time, thanks for tuning in and listening. And uh, have a good one.